We're going to have a conversation now with Jane Koston of the great state of Ohio uh, and the New York Times, in that order. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, she's a very widely regarded columnist um, and uh, host of um, The Argument, a podcast, and is able to penetrate um, the confusing and sometimes ugly narratives in American society and politics in ways that my conservative friends and my progressive friends um, within my own family <laughs> both say she's onto something. So we're really thrilled she's come uh, all the way across the pond to help us make sense of where American society and politics are uh, as we all focus on this midterm election. So Jane, let's just open up with the big question, how messed up are we? <laughs> what, 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 what is, what is your uh, bottom line on the state of American democracy and politics right now? Well, I, I think that that's a complica complicated question. Yeah. <laughs> and I think my answer would have to be, it's bad, but not as bad as it could be, um, which might be uh, the Midwesterner in me who believes firmly that everything's probably going to be fine. Um, so I, I think that in American politics and American democracy right now, there is a sense that many people are dissatisfied, but they're dissatisfied for different reasons, and they all disagree on what would be the possible solution. So, for example, people are increasingly dissatisfied with the current economic situation in America, which has left many people who are attempting to live a middle-class lifestyle unable to afford that. There are many people who see that their parents were able to purchase homes and live a specific type of life that they now find inaccessible. And there are many people for whom politics has become something of a cudgel, and they remember it being differently. I would also say that for many of those people, they are remembering an America that was not as diverse as America is now, and was not as welcoming of that diversity as it is now. For example, many people who remember their parents benefiting from the GI Bill, which was uh, passed after the Second World War, were unaware that the GI Bill did not apply to African-American soldiers, such as my grandfather, um, who fought in the Battle of the Bulge in Europe. And so for many people, they are remembering a different kind of America than the America that exists today. I also think, though, that currently we are in an information typhoon of sorts. People are more aware of what is taking place across the country, but they are more aware of what's taking place across the country in a way that is both uninformative and removed. For example, people will know a great deal about a school board election that's taking place in a state they have never been to, but they will be markedly unaware of who's running for the city council of the city in which they live in. So people are simultaneously overburdened with information, but that information is markedly unhelpful to how they live their lives. And I think that that has created an atmosphere in which the dissatisfaction is not just a dissatisfaction about their own lives, it's about what they see around them or what is portrayed to them. They see a world in which people are doing things they do not like, and they are more aware of it than they have ever been in their entire lives. And I think that that, in some ways, is cause for dissatisfaction. Now, I often hear sometimes American uh, pundits and columnists talking about, oh, like, is this, are we heading towards another civil war? The answer is no, 
Uh, the American Civil War was a singular event, a singular event that was roughly 200 years in the making over a singular question, the question of slavery. There is not, that level of dissatisfaction is not what we're thinking about right now. But we are seeing a lot of people who are dissatisfied with what America is doing right now. But many people, as I mentioned, differ on what it would take to make them feel better about what America is doing right now. So I think that America right now, domestically, is in a situation that I am often, you know, I was raised in um, Cincinnati, Ohio, which is a pretty conservative uh, city, and I was raised Catholic. So I would say that Americans are in a situation that I think many American Catholics are in, which is being kind of annoyed and depressed about things, but unsure of what to do about it. So I would say that um, it's, it's not good. It's been worse. I would say that we are nowhere near the malaise of the early 1970s or the early 1980s. I think that we are dealing with massive economic shifts and change that people are still trying to reckon with. But also, you can see that what constitutes a middle-class lifestyle in America still remains an incredibly high standard of living for many people. However, many people are still living in poverty. However, those people are often pushed out of the conversation in American politics. There's a lot of focus on middle-class vo voters, not a lot of focus on poor voters or the people who don't see a point in voting at all. About one-third of Americans don't vote. So when we're having a conversation about American politics, we're actually having a conversation about a remarkably small slice of American life arguing about the rest of American life. So I think that that's the situation we're in right now. Um, as always, I could be wrong, but I think that's kind of my reading of it. Um, I, 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 I think it's great that the columnists can say I could be wrong. You don't, you don't, you don't often hear I'm that. often wrong. <laughs> Now, it doesn't mean you are often wrong. It just means you're, you're, you're open to inquiry and debate and the argument, your, your podcast uh, moniker. I was really struck by one of the first things you said, which is about your own grandfather's narrative, mm -hmm. uh, returning from World War II, a, you know, a, a veteran of the Battle of the Bulge, could not get the GI Bill. Nope. And is, is one possible explanation for where we are that, you know, ironically, precisely because American society and politics are more inclusive, um, there's more friction? Yes, I would say that that is, um, that is, to me, a major piece of this particular puzzle. Uh, a friend and colleague of mine in America named Ezra Klein, who's a columnist for the New York Times, he wrote a book called Why We're Polarized. Um, you should read it. It's pretty solid. But he talks about how in the 1950s in America, that was an era in which many people perceived, and studies show, people perceived a real lack of polarization. And when I say polarization, I mean the two poles of American politics, Democratic Party, Republican Party, liberals, conservatives, were closer together than they are now. Now let's keep in mind that the 1950s, politics largely excluded African Americans, Latino voters, um, and a large swath of other participating Americans from the political experiment. So there, you know, if you People occasionally remember in America um, that there used to be this time in which you know, Southern Democrats and Northern Republicans could work together. And they were working together in an era of uh, state-sanctioned segregation. So it was a lot easier to find common ground when all of the people were generally all the same. So I think that the increasing diversity of America 
And especially because that diversity does not mean whatever anyone thinks it's going to mean. So for example, you see a host of people writing about how surprised they are that um, Latino Americans, uh, folks who their ancestors or they themselves emigrated from El Salvador, Mexico, Cuba, any part of the global south, that those voters are coming to America and they are voting for Republicans. And people are just stunned by this. And I just keep thinking, like, well, they tend to be religiously conservative, socially conservative. It actually makes total sense. Mm. And so I think that there are a host of people who are, people have expectations of what a diversifying America will mean. And it's, in some ways, it becomes this, I don't know if, um, about 10, 12 years ago, there was this ongoing thesis called the Emerging Democratic Majority that there would at some point, once um, white Americans became a minority percentage-wise in the United States, Democrats would win every election for the rest of collective time. And that became both a signpost for hope for some Democrats and also a signpost of deep fear for some Republicans and white nationalist groups. It turns out, one, that's not how people's racial identification tends to work especially over time, over generations. And two, non-white people can also vote for Republicans. And so I think that you see a host of people whose understanding of the rapidly diversifying and increasingly racially mixed American population is based on an understanding of politics that's from, from before the Hart-Seller Act passed in 1965, which changed American immigration law. Um, and it, it's, you know, it's, antediluvian almost. And so I think that that is part of what is increasing the polarization is when you have more people involved in the conversation, people will inherently get further apart. There are going to be disagreements. We see this, um, there's been, I, I'm not sure if it made it to Australia, but there's a recent story out of Los Angeles um, in which members of the Los Angeles City Council were uh, recorded saying incredibly mind-bendingly racist things about the two-year-old adoptive son an African-American child of another council member. And the people saying these incredibly racist things were Latino. And there were people who were just shocked by this. But one, race in politics has always been a complicated mix, especially when it comes to the attempting to determine who gets power and who doesn't. But also that these conversations are happening and are increasingly taking place in cities and towns and states across America. Mm. One thing I've learned since I moved here a few months ago, everything in American politics gets here. Yeah, I, sorry. <laughs> no, 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 it, it, it surprised me. Um, no, 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 I'm sorry that it comes. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's okay, being an American is always, abroad is always having to say I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, the, the, uh, the Lowy Institute um, had a survey uh, shortly after President Trump got elected, and um, there was deep, deep alarm about American democracy, mm -hmm. as you'd expect. But when Australians were asked, do you like the Americans you've met, the number who said yes went way up. Mm -hmm. And my theory was just everyone was apologizing all the time and being very polite. Um, so... Um, we're not British. That's, you know... No. We're not British. Not anymore. <laughs> um, so the, um, you know, the longer narrative of American history is captured in... It, we're both Latin nerds mm -hmm. in the e pluribus unum from right. any one. And so viscosity, friction, societal mm -hmm. tension is inevitable with that right. 250, 60 year experiment. But then, you know, and by the way, not so different in Australia mm -hmm. or um, other democracies. Um, um, 
the, the retro piece, the fighting back, mm -hmm. uh, gets a lot more attention internationally than the progress piece. Um, but there are also um, elements that are new and are um, anti-progressive. Uh, you know, if, if you look at our survey or any public opinion survey in the United States, the next generation just has different views mm -hmm. on, 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 on gay marriage, on race, on everything. Mm -hmm. And you can sort of see the march of history. Um, the, the pushback uh, is almost inevitable. Mm -hmm. But in some ways, the pushback and the viscosity and the tension is being exacerbated by some new things. Mm -hmm. um, as you've noted in your columns, can we put up the slide um, of the, um, just what we asked Americans and Australians and Japanese what worries them about American democracy. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, let's see, that was it, oh, we lost it. So uh, bottom line is a lot, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, although less so our Japanese friends, um, uh, but, but certainly for Australians and Americans who sort of share concern. But the, um, the number one concern by far is misinformation. Mm -hmm. And on both sides of the aisles, both sides think the other side's mm -hmm. lying. And if you ever do, I'm sure you do, uh, my wife hates it when I do this, but if you're in the US and you switch between MSNBC and CNN mm -hmm. and Fox, you can't believe they're all on the same planet. Right. Um, so how bad is that? How permanent is that? That, 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 that you know, uh, stovepiping of narratives uh, where people are just getting a completely different picture of well, the universe. Is that a permanent feature of American democracy now or are we just learning how to live with it? And deal I with think it? that, um, well, first, I'd go back to say that people tend to prefer the information that tells them what they want to hear. And that's not particularly new. Mm. What I think has shifted is that in the United States, there are, one, there has been a massive loss of local newspapers and local news sources. Um, we've seen larger corporations taking over local television news channels mm. um, to have a more singular message across the country. And that impacts how news is reported, and that impacts what is reported in the first place. I would also say that because there has been a massive boom in national news and in the types of you know, differing news sources, people who are older than I am always talk about how there, you know, there used to be a time where there were three channels and you had, it was like the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and then like hope, you know, your local newspaper, those were basically it, or the LA Times also. Um, and I think that you've seen that the news environment has shifted so dramatically, especially towards the type of news that tells you what you already think. Um, I think that, that in some ways, Rupert Murdoch was very smart in some ways in recognizing that what people wanted to read about was what they were most afraid of and what they most wanted to hear from someone else. So, you know, the, I, I always joke that the most effective message in media is if you have a person who's telling you, no one else is willing to tell you this, but I think you're great and everything you think is true. Um, I sometimes think like, I should just have run on that and mm. I'd be very wealthy now. But I won't do that because that would be weird. Yeah. Um, but I, I think that the media environment has shifted dramatically to the nationalization of local news. Um, in which a story that takes place in Baltimore somehow becomes massive news in Los Angeles because, not because it really has national ramifications, but because that's, you know, it's a good story to report on. Um, I think you see that in the beginning with 
um, in the 1980s and 1990s in America with crime news. For example, the O.J. Simpson trial, which became a global story while also being an extraordinarily local story. And so, and now that you see that with pretty much everything taking place, you see that especially with the growth of social media, that someone tweeting something untoward can become a national news story because it's easy to report on and you can get lots of people to yell on it. Mm. And uh, it's easier to find people who will tell you their opinion than to find people who will report on it. And so I think that that, that has just shifted. But I would also say that this, you know, America's media environment what it used to look like, um, kind of before, say, the 1930s and 1940s, was this type of personality-driven so-called yellow journalism that was largely aimed at making, you know, whether it was the Pulitzer family or someone else, as much money as humanly possible, reporting on what people wanted to hear about, which in the early 19th century, or early 20th century, late 19th century was gory murders, and terrible people doing something that you didn't want them to do. So I would say that our media environment has just become increasingly more, refle more reflective of what Americans want. It's not what Americans want to want. Americans will tell you all the time, you know, I have this, that they, they want to be challenged. They want more civil disagreement. But I, then I, I talk to them further, and often what that means is that they want to hear what they, want, they already believe, and then they want to hear that reaffirmed to them again. And so I think that it, it's complicated because um, the New York Times, Washington Post, or even the reporters who are at places like the Cleveland Playing Dealer, the Cincinnati Enquirer, a lot of these smaller newspapers, the Indianapolis Star, the people who are reporting on really important stories, Sometimes there, I think that there's a real need to appeal to this, to a, a mass audience that is looking to be told either something that they're deeply afraid of or something that they already believe. And I think that, that that's an ongoing challenge, um, particularly now that people can kind of, you know, as you mentioned, you can pick and choose exactly your news source so that there is a world in which you have heard only about Hunter Biden's laptop and there's a world in which you have never heard of who Hunter Biden is at all. And you can be living in the same town, you can be living on the same street and have an entirely different media experience of the world. But if you're on the same street, you probably still need to know if, you're, if there's going to be construction outside your house, or who's running for mayor, or hey, what was that big sound outside? <laughs> and so I think that that's why I always talk about the importance of local news, mm -hmm. the importance of rebuilding local news, because national stories are important. They all are people who report on the federal government. It's really important news. But also, there's kind of a basic need for everyday Americans and everyday people anywhere to know, is it going to rain today? Um, you know, what is this construction project? Hey, what's going on over there? I think that the, the greatest journalism question is, hey, what's happening over there? And I think that, that there needs to be more focus on answering that. You know, after the 2016 election, um, a lot of elite institutions, were in a, including the New York Times, I'm sure, but the Center for Strategic International Studies, CSIS, where I worked, uh, were in a complete state of shock. Mm -hmm. And um, we had long uh, debates about what to do. We'd lost the American people, and people said, let's, let's rent a bus and drive around the country teaching civics and international affairs and all kinds of stupid, crazy ideas that would have made us look even more elitist and out of touch. Mm -hmm. In the end, what happened was, um, CSIS and other think tanks like Brookings found that the um, 
web uh, uh, participation in our research exploded, mm -hmm. especially younger Americans, were, so, were sick of this and wanted information. Mm -hmm. And I'm told the New York Times also found digital uh, subscriptions, especially younger Americans, shot up after yeah. that. So there's, there's also this counter trend where people want, on national news, mm -hmm. want real information. People so there want, must be an up, I mean, your yeah. podcast and your column sort of yeah. aims at that. Yeah, I think that there are lots of people who want as much information as possible, especially because I think that um, the 2016 election for many people was a... So often, I think, that people had kind of deluded themselves into thinking that the machinations of politics either wouldn't affect them or were so big and vast that their individual vote didn't matter. Um, you will meet in America a host of people who uh, you know, either didn't vote in 2016 or kind of uh, voted for a third-party candidate because they thought that the election was already so sure that they didn't need to participate in that manner or they didn't need to make a more strategic decision. And I think that there are lots of people who realized after 2016, I mean, if you see the, um, just the content delivery and the way that people were involving themselves in politics after 2016, I remember, um, you know, I'm not, I didn't grow up in like a, my parents are you know, long time New York Times subscribers, but we didn't talk about politics at the time. We talked about like, you know, people talked about city council elections. And, but where I grew up in Cincinnati, like federal news was not a big deal. Like it just wasn't. People were not just laser focused on it. And then when I went back after the 2016 election, suddenly everybody's just like, who's going to be Speaker of the House? And I'm just like, I don't, what is, I'm sorry, what is happening? And so I think that there's been, people really want information, and especially because I think that people realized, you see in the 2017 special elections and the 2018 midterms, and even in 2020, that people were aware that like, oh, my vote can matter, I can participate in this. And you saw, there's always, every couple of years, people remember that there's such thing as local elections. You saw a host of people being like, I, you know, if this guy can become president, well, then I can run for the state house. Like, and it turns out, yes, you can. And so um, I think that's been, you've seen a lot of people who are interested in government and a lot of people who want government to be doing something differently. Um, I would also say, though, that one, one of my concerns is that there are, there's messaging from people who are very interested in the focus on democracy that I think unfairly, like the rhetoric ratchets up the tension to such a degree that voting cannot answer it. Mm -hmm. So for example, if you tell people that you know, repeatedly that we are in a crisis, that this is the end, essentially the end times, and you tell people that the way to deal with that is to vote, it's kind of like, I, I, can, I get concerned sometimes that when you ratchet up the stakes to such a degree, it, it makes it appear as if, why would you vote? Why, why not either just give up or take more radical action? Yeah. Let me, I'm going to turn to the audience for questions. Um, last one for me. Um, the, I, I, I take as, as the larger historical moment we're in that this is part of the e pluribusum. This mm -hmm. is part of uh, a longer American narrative that's, mm -hmm. that's been, that's important. Mm -hmm. And, um, what upsets me personally the most is the character of leadership that much of the American public is looking for. Um, I did grow up in a very political, I grew up inside the, the Beltway. My, 
my mom worked for Republicans and my dad worked for Democrats. So every breakfast and dinner was a political conversation who's going to be speaker. And, um, but um, they admired good leaders. They mm -hmm. admired, you know, um, my, my, my dad, the Democrat, grudgingly acknowledged Ronald Reagan was a good leader. And my mom acknowledged, you know, that uh, uh, Barack Obama was a great leader. And, and they, there was, they, they thought about the character of leadership. And the American people wanted leaders they could respect and trust. But we're in an era now, more so on the Republican side, but where leaders are being sort of chosen and, and rising up, not on their character, but on their ability to damage the other side and mm -hmm. be provocative. Um, is that a new normal, do you think? Or, uh, is, is, or is this sort of just a phase we're going through with the media changes and, and political changes in the, the way you know, people are getting elected that's temporary? Well, I, I think um, I was interested in your point about uh, how your father acknowledged that Ronald mm. Reagan was a good leader. Uh, my parents are, they, uh, they would believe they'd be referred to kind of as union Democrats. Mm. And growing up in a, a very conservative city, but they were Democrats. And um, they renamed a highway near Cincinnati. Um, it's, it's now Ronald Ra Reagan Cross County Highway. Mm -hmm. But my parents would sooner lie down on top of it <laughs> than refer to it by that. So it's been Cross County Highway. And there were times where my mom would be in conversation with someone and be like, oh, you know, we're going to go here. And they're like, oh, are you going to take Ronald Reagan? And she'll be like, no, we'll take Cross County. <laughs> it's the same road. Mm -hmm. But I think that that type of, for a lot of people, their politics, I think that the idea that there are, you know, the, the vice signaling, which is what I call it, which is, there's, I don't know if you've heard the term virtue signaling, which is this idea of kind of performative virtue, which to me, personally, you should always perform virtue. That's the point. Like, it's um, not to, you know, the idea that there's a, I'm a Christian, so I'll, I'll make this reference, but uh, there's this idea in the Bible of, um, you know, you don't hide your light under a bushel basket. The idea of virtue is to perform it. I understand that for many people, virtue signaling, the assumption is that you're not really that virtuous. Vice signaling is the idea that you want to signal how terrible you are because actually everyone else is also terrible. Mm -hmm. You see this sometimes when people, um, call, you know, if someone says something really racist, the idea is like, well, everyone's thinking that. I'm just saying it. I'm so brave that everyone else is racist or anti-Semitic or bigoted in some way. And so I think that type of vice signaling is appealing to an American populace that I think has been so turned off by what they see as a perceived hypocrisy of leadership that's been going back for a really long time. I think that there are lots of people who, for instance, you know, if you say nice things about Ted Kennedy, every Republican's like, that weirdo alcoholic. If you say you know, nice things about Ronald Reagan, my parents have a whole litany of problems with Ronald Reagan. We get into like Iran-Contra and we'll, we'll never move on. But I think that um, there are lots of people who they believe that performative vice at least is more honest in some sense. But I don't think that, one, that doesn't do anything. The most vice-signaling members of Congress are notably unable, well, I can think of one who's not allowed to be on any committees and another who was just recently voted out uh, because it turns out that his district wanted him to do things and he didn't do any of those things. And then his district was like, you got to go. You got to... We don't care how, you know, you're, no, you got to go. And so I think that that is, 
the, the people looking for vice signaling candidates, I think, is along the same lines of people who always want to send someone to Washington to send a message or to you know, reject politics as usual. I've often said that like, actually it would be great to have politics as usual. Like, remember politics as usual? Ugh, <laughs> it was great. Um, but I think that it comes from a lot along litany, especially if people who grew up in the 1970s and 1980s and their memories of politics are of Malays are of you know, the very beginning, like they remember early Watergate, they remember Iran-Contra, they remember just a host of events in which people told them something and that turned out none of it was true. And I would say that for many Americans, the, and that is you know, experience to me personally, is the Iraq and Afghanistan war. Mm. I was a freshman in high school, so I've been a, about third, no, I turned 14 about a week before September 11th. And we went to war like uh, in, so the Iraq war began March of 2003. We went into Afghanistan later in 2001. I am now 35 years old and those conflicts sort of just ended. Mm. And I think for a lot of Americans, after they were told by deeply moral people, like um, how George W. Bush person, you know, portrayed himself or a host of other Republicans portrayed themselves, after being told repeatedly that there were weapons of mass destruction and that all of this was possible because we had to take out the people who did this to us and seeing that after more than 20 years of war and a number of, you know, you had a host of American families in which not just, you know, a father would fight in Iraq and then his son would fight and die in Iraq. I think that there are a lot of people who they want the performative vice because at least that seems more honest. It isn't. A lot of the people I've spoken to, a host of people who they perform that vice on television, and then you meet them and they're just, you know, they're very polite and kind because they're, you know, they're not complete psychopaths. And so I think it is that yearning for some sort of honesty, but it's, it's not real honesty and it's performative and it's not doing anything to, you know, solve the problems that people actually have in their lives. Let me, um, I think we have a microphone. Yeah. Yep, so raise your hand if you'd like to ask a question uh, or uh, give an observation to Jane, and we have a microphone over here. Yes, ma'am. Uh. Thank you very much. Oh, could you briefly identify yourself, just yes, so Jane yes, knows certainly. you? Uh, Jenny Gordon, I'm at ANU and also a non-resident fellow at Lowy Institute. Um, I've been listening to that excellent podcast, The Run-Up, that I think one of your colleagues in um, New York Times has been doing. But it just gave me a real insight into the likelihood of politicisation of the election machinery in mm -hmm. a lot of states. And so I'd really like to get your thoughts on, you know, what, what's a counter to that? And is that a real danger to American democracy? Thank you. Well... My answer is not going to be particularly satisfying because I don't know. I think that so many of our questions, you know, when you talk about the machinery that is used for elections, you'll note that the same people who are very upset about Dominion machines and Hugo Chavez or something, they are totally convinced they won their elections. And there was actually a great, um, the podcast you're referring to is from my friend and colleague, Ested. Um, he's great, definitely listened to the run-up. Um, and, but the, we, there was another great Times piece about how a host of people who were participating in that same type of 
election machinery demagoguery, we're all, they, they won their elections using the same types of elections, uh, election machinery, but that's different because, of course it is, because it has nothing to do with the actual machinations of elections. It has everything to do with the idea that certain people should win elections and certain people shouldn't win elections. And I think that that I don't know how you solve. I think that the idea, for instance, you'll hear a lot about how, oh, like, Pennsylvania went to Biden in 2020 because just before the election they introduced uh, mail-in ballots. The law regarding mail-in ballots was passed in 2019. So unless the good people of the Pennsylvania S Senate had some sort of telepathy, uh, that's not what happened. And so I think that so much of this is not about the individual questions. One of the challenges of conspiracy theories, and I've done a lot of reporting on this, is that you can't fact check a conspiracy theory because the fact check becomes included in the conspiracy. Um, and normally it, it's actually more helpful to think of those on, um, and there's uh, some great research that shows that conspiracy theories don't work on a left-right basis. Um, for instance, if you remember in the early 2000s, the number of people who would consider themselves big liberals in America were 100% convinced that George W. Bush was responsible for September 11th in some extremely complicated plot that would be very hard to pull off. Because it work, conspiracy theories work on an insider-outsider bias. If you believe in a conspiracy theory, you know something other people don't know. And if people try to fact check you, that just proves that they don't know all the things that you know. And you will always have, if you ever ask to someone who's a conspiracy theorist, they will have read literally everything about the thing that has ever been written about the thing. They have, you know, if you're a moon landing conspiracy theorist, they have watched every single documentary, documentary about it. They have a possession of knowledge about it that is just unchallengeable because it, it provides an insider knowledge. It's the same reason why when you get emails from companies, there's always come some line that's about how like, you know, this is just for insiders, this is just for you. It makes people feel special. And I think that that's the challenge which challenging that type of conspiracy theory. It's nothing to do with the machines. It has nothing to do with how anyone votes or boxes or letters or anything. It has to do with the idea that you know something that other people don't know. And especially if you are cosseted in that information and you can surround yourself in a bubble of that, I don't know how you get people out of that. Hi. Yeah. I'm Kerry Croydon, a retired public servant, and I once spent a lovely year studying American literature. Um, uh, a big influence on one's quality of life in America seems to be decisions of the Supreme Court. Yes. And, um, I just wonder whether um, there's uh, an awareness and influence of um, those uh, decisions and the role of the court, because as an outsider, it does seem uh, arguable that it has been politicised. Mm -hmm. uh, would you like to comment, please, on the um, role of the Supreme Court and Absolutely. how it's affecting life? Um, well, so how it's supposed to work is that, that the Supreme Court is supposed to rule on the constitutionality of existing laws and that Congress makes laws and that the executive does something else that I can't quite remember because civics was a long time ago. But it does important things. And so I think that the challenge has been that the Supreme Court's involvement, we recognize and each party recognizes the importance of the Supreme Court in determining the constitutionality of laws or specifically regarding you know, 
how states can then interpret law. And I think that as Congress has become increasingly bogged down by gridlock and by performative politicians who don't do anything, and especially the, you know, what you've seen, especially from Republicans, is that there has been a 50-year project since Roe versus Wade was decided in 1973 to get Roe versus Wade overturned. That has meant a long project of getting justices on the court who would vote on that specific way. That doesn't mean that those justices might vote differently on other cases. We've seen on a host of other cases in which people thought that the justices would vote one way, that they, they didn't. But it does see, it's because Congress, I think, has abdicated its role in passing legislation that the Supreme Court's role has become so increasingly important. So, for example, in the Supreme Court case that legalized same-sex marriage in America, that uh, Obergefell versus v. Hodges, that comes in part because Congress, at no point, and still is dealing with, they at no point passed a federal, they did not pass a federal marriage law. Now, this was a good thing to me in the early 2000s. There was an effort to amend the Constitution to bar same-sex marriage. It's something George W. Bush ran on in 2004. And then it turns out that the Iraq War was hot trash, so they all gave up on that and lost in the midterms in 2006. But I think that because repeatedly we've seen that Congress cannot pass legislation, we've seen more executive actions taken um, by the executive branch. We've seen um, Joe Biden, for instance, with regarding student loan relief. You see Trump with the wall. You see Obama with a host of executive actions. Where it just is like, Congress won't do this. Congress can't do this. You can't get something passed because of the filibuster, which means you have to get more than 60 votes. Now, it's not, oh, you have 51, we have 49, we win. It's no, you have to get to 60, um, which on pretty much everything is almost impossible. So I would say that the Supreme Court has been taking over the role that should be had by the legislature. And you're seeing a host of issues in which it's actually lower, lower courts that then those decisions wind up at the Supreme Court, or it's state houses, local laws that then get challenged to go up to the Supreme Court and then have national ramifications. And I think that one of the interesting things is that the recent Dobbs decision that overturned Roe versus Wade that did not inherently, that was not supposed to just wipe out abortion rights nationwide. It just so happens that all of these states had abortion laws previous to Roe versus Wade that stemmed from like the 1850s. For instance, I believe it's Wisconsin. It was looking to return to an abortion law that was, I think, passed in 1849. And so you have a bunch of states and Congress that basically have just been, they have not been legislating on specific issues because they're just sort of waiting for this, either the Supreme Court to handle it for them or for an executive action that then the Supreme Court will rule on. And so I think that it has come because, one, there has been a concerted project to get con more conservatives on the Supreme Court. And two, it has come because Congress doesn't do what Congress is supposed to do. There is, you, know, you have, for instance, like I, I keep thinking about how the Affordable Care Act, that was this massive action that was taken by Congress, and that took years. And a lot of the people who wound up passing the Affordable, Affordable Care Act wound up getting kicked out of Congress. And I think that there is a real attitude in Congress that they would rather be in Congress forever than be in Congress, do something, get voted out, and have to go home and live where they're from. 
Um, I love living in DC, but like it's not that great. Calm down. And so I think yeah, that's that my hometown. It's, it's, I've been there for 12 years. It's great. Um, and so I think that there's a real sense that because Congress isn't legislating, the Supreme Court is doing the legislating for them. One of the areas in our survey where Republicans and Democrats, Biden and Trump voters are in agreement, you can see 73, 70, 71% there, is that Congress isn't doing its job. Right. Uh, but it's not doing its job on the issues you've just described, abortion right. rights, uh, gay marriage, societal, cultural right. values issues. But the Congress just passed the IRA, one of the most sweeping um, uh, uh, federal uh, uh, spending bills mm -hmm. on uh, uh, climate and and then the Chips and Science Act. The, oh, yeah. The yeah, largest it's, case it's, of industrial policy in the last 30 years. So on the, things that are not about culture, it seems yeah. like they can't function. Yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting also because I think the Chips Act, basically that became like China. Yeah. And everyone's like, oh, okay. Um, it turned, I, I, it's those, especially though because I think that a lot of people, you're aware of what Congress does on culture issues. Yeah. And also, I think it becomes kind of a mantra, a talisman that Congress doesn't do anything. Congress doesn't do anything. If you point out that Congress has done something, I believe this current Congress has been the most productive in like 15 yeah. years. Yeah. And, but then it just is kind of like, well, Congress isn't doing things that I want them to do or on the things I care about. I'll come back to this at the end, but it is doing things that Australians care about. Yes. <laughs> and foreign policy. I, why don't I take, because we have about three and a half, four minutes. Uh, I think I see Cam and Janine. Uh, so get those two, and then you can respond to both of them in one set. Uh, thanks, Jane. <clears throat> Fascinating discussion. Uh, Cameron Mitchell, ANZ Bank. Uh, hoping you could sort of go back very quickly to get back to the conspiracy theories, mm -hmm. uh, which I obviously, sorry, not obviously, but I'm a person that doesn't really subscribe to conspiracy theories, and I found it really fascinating and quite disturbing. Uh, the Alex Jones saga, mm -hmm. with Info Wars, and the Sandy Hook conspiracy. I just had a question around: Is there a limit, do you think, that the U.S. public sort of gets to on how extreme conspiracy theories get before they just switch off, or is it very much if you follow Info Wars, you believe everything that's said? You don't choose. Well, some of those are a bit too extreme for me. I'm going to switch off. So I guess it's a question about how far we can go with conspiracy theories. And then Thanks. Uh, Janine, and then you can. Yeah. Mine kind of follows that, Janine Parrott, journalist. Um, I was wondering about the influence of media. Do we overestimate or underestimate the pernicious, the toxic influence of, say, a fox? Mm -hmm. Because uh, here in Australia, we have a higher concentration of Murdoch, yet we just elected right. a sane government. We have, um, in the US, you had Obama elected, even with the influence of Fox. We've just had Biden elected. So... Do people get a bit carried away with that, or is the bigger worry, which I've noticed lately, that CNN is backing off, trying to be too centrist, trying not to upset the horses? We see that a bit with the ABC. Is that a danger, or is the real danger that everyone under a certain age is getting their information from TikTok and they do not care if it's misinformation or not to go to the conspiracy theory? So I'll, I'll go with the first question first. Um, so with regard to conspiracy theories, what you actually do find is that there are, there's a certain type of, so there are, I'm sure you've heard of kind of open personalities and closed personalities, and there is a certain type, and we all know those people, the people who kind of, um, I would compare it to, if you have friends or, you know, the friend of a friend who shows up and you're like, I don't even know why you're here, um, there's a certain kind of person who kind of does believe in a little bit of everything, or they, they are open to almost everything. But even those people tend to be, 
singularly focused on one conspiracy theory. So for example, um, there are people who are, and there have been studies on this, there are people who are convinced of one conspiracy theory, but if you ask them about another conspiracy theory, they're like, oh, that just, that, no, no, absolutely not. So you'll see people who are convinced that the Sandy Hook shooting was faked, but if you ask them about, like, um, let's see, especially older conspiracy theories or ones that are, like, less politically salient. Um, so they're, if you ask them about being a flat earther, for example, they'll be like, oh, that's stupid. Um, and so I think that conspiracy theories tend to work on the basis of mistrust or on the idea of kind of the, of that insider knowledge. And so I think that that type of uh, conspiracy theories tend to function successfully if you are already distrustful of the entity that you are being told about the actual information. So um, I'll give you an example. Um, I, I've talked about this before a little bit, but, uh, and I, I remember I podcasted about this a million years ago. But um, the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. in the United States in April of 1968, there have been a host of investigations, and eventually uh, Coretta Scott King, his widow, um, got involved in an investigation because she believed that the government was in some ways involved with the assassination of Martin Luther King. Um, it was uh, the, this, the assassin is believed to be uh, one person, uh, one person a, uh, who is responsible for that, but there's kind of this idea that there were more people involved or that he had some other, he was helped in some way. And to people of, especially African-Americans of a specific age who were around in 1968, people of that era, that's a conspiracy theory. They're like, oh yeah, that seems, yeah, that seems, like J. Edgar Hoover may have been involved in the murder of Martin Luther King. Like, yeah, that seems logical. That's not to say that that's true at all. I have zero information saying that any of that part is true. But I will say that conspiracy theories tend to rise when you already distrust whatever the institution is that's telling you otherwise. So the Sandy Hook conspiracy theory, the point is not, from, for conspiracy theorists, is not about like fake children or like the absolutely disgusting lies. It is the idea that this is all happening to further gun control. That the government made this all happen to further gun control efforts. And the more that the government tells you that didn't happen, the more you're like, this is obviously about gun control. And so I think that that type of conspiracy theory is particularly pernicious. One, because we have markedly few institutions that are totally bulletproof to that. So, for example, if you told someone, in, someone, someone uninvolved in the 1960s that the Catholic Church was moving pedophiles from parish to parish and hiding up a mass child abuse scandal, that sounds like a conspiracy theory, and then it turned out to be completely true. And so I think that the concern is that it's not that people believe anything, it's that people tend to believe conspiracy theories that center on an institution that they already don't trust, or a conspiracy theory that seems to be about something that they care about specifically. So that's why a lot of conspiracy theories are about child abuse, which does really happen, and about like, you know, this idea that this is happening to further this political thing that you're already afraid of. Um, you know, the, the horrible thing in many, all of this is horrible, to be clear, 
But among the horrible things is because a lot of times conspiracy theories are telling people that the problem is the singular entity and not just the nature of human evil. Um, the idea that actually that, you know, the bad people are these evil, child-abusing people who are doing this and everyone else is good when that's not how child abuse works and that most people uh, who experience child abuse are abused by members of their own family. And so I think that the main point I, I want to make is not that people who listen to Alex Jones believe everything he says. I think they are aware in many cases that some of it isn't like, to them it's like, oh, well, some of this is crazy, but some of it sounds really accurate, especially because he'll bring on other people to kind of back him up. But I think that what concerns me most is that conspiracy theories are based on the idea that there is an institution generally that is telling you something that you can't believe. And if you tell people that the CIA is doing something, then you're like, well, I mean, they could be. They probably aren't. But like, I think that that's the concern. Um, as to your question about media, I, I think that's actually a really interesting point. Um, I think sometimes we overestimate how people think about the media or how people think about the news and that the, I think the most dangerous estimation that people make is that if people got the right information, they would vote the way we want them to. Um, you often see this idea that like, um, generally on Twitter, you, the, the people who are like, well, if you just banned Fox News, you just pulled Fox News from the airwaves in America, no one would ever vote for a Republican again. As if Fox News, Fox News did not exist um, when Nixon was elected in, 19, in 1968, uh, when Reagan was elected in 1980. Fox News is a relatively recent invention. And so I think that so much, we, we pro, people tend to project onto these outlets mass, like this mass appeal that they don't really have. Um, I often remind people that uh, Tucker Carlson's show is the, it's the biggest quote, an opinion show in America. And they get, like, it's like three million viewers a night. Do you know also gets three million viewers a night in America? Reruns of the Big Bang Theory. <laughs> oh, both not good television. <laughs> but um, the mass appeal of these, it's not to say that these entities are not powerful. That's not what I want to say. But I do think that we tend to look towards this outer entity with the belief that if people just couldn't see it or didn't watch it, they wouldn't think these, these ways. But you know, if, you've ever, if you've ever spent a lot of time among, like, you know, in rural America or urban America or pretty much any part of America at all, people do not need help saying insane th things. They didn't get it all from the news source of their, of their choosing. They can come up with it all by themselves. And so I think that we tend to overestimate that I do think um, it, it, it's, it's also challenging because so much of our considerations of the effectiveness of media or what media is doing right or wrong is this idea that if they did it the way we want them to do it, something would be different. That no one would have voted for Donald Trump if literally everyone just watched uh, PBS all the time. Or if you just had to watch C-SPAN every day, no one would do these things that we don't like them doing. But I think that that really is... I think that, that that is not asking enough questions about why people make their decisions. It assumes that people are blinded by propaganda in a way that that's not even how propaganda works. Propaganda comes from a basis of understanding an audience and, and telling them what they want to hear based on what they, knowing what they want to hear. It doesn't just 
come up with things out of the clear blue sky. It sees that you are concerned about something and it blows it up and, and projects it onto something else while telling you that this other thing can fix it. So I think that that is something where people aren't doing enough work on asking the questions of what are Americans fearing, what are Americans wanting, what do Americans want to hear, and they spend too much time focusing on whether the media outlet is doing it. I think that we, you know, uh, there was someone joking about how the New York Times gets a lot of criticism whenever um, the politics side covers, um, say, like a conspiracy theorist politician, and they can say that, like, this person said that Jewish space lasers were responsible for forest fires and all of this stuff, but then, you know, someone on Twitter would be like, but why won't you tell us that she's bad? Which is like, did you not read all about the the space lasers? Like, I think that there's this idea that if we just said the right words, people wouldn't vote the way they do. And I mean, I think that if you ask a lot of people, they would be saying like, look, if we, could, if we knew what those words were, we would say them. But I think that there is kind of an overstatement of that. And I think that, I mean, it's the same way that people get really worried about TikTok trends. They can just start making up TikTok trends and then people, there'll be vacuous reporting on local news outlets about it. But I think like, Americans? are weird. We've always been really weird. We celebrated Andrew Jackson's presidential victory by getting incredibly drunk outside the White House and having a giant wheel of cheese. We're very strange people. And it just so happens there's a lot of us. And I think that that's something like, it's not Fox News making us weird. It's not MSNBC making us weird. We're just weird. There are just so many of us. We're strange people. I don't know what to say. <laughs> um, that was brilliant. Um, thank you, Jane. Do we want to still take our tea break, guys? So um, very brief tea break. We're going to set up um, for Ron Brownstein to join us uh, by video. Yeah, in five minutes to do the numbers for the midterm and looking ahead to 2024. Um, but uh, uh, that was fantastic. And if anyone is a conspiracy theorist and you want to tell Jane she just doesn't get it, we'll, no. we'll, be, out outside, <laughs> we'll be outside having tea. Thanks. Perfect. Absolutely. Thank you so much.